Well, I just want to welcome you again to the, the series of Sunday night classes that we're going through to start off this fall called Tough Questions That the World Has for Christianity. And so what we're doing, if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, is we're, we're addressing a few difficult questions that many of us as Christians will encounter in this world, whether that's from our non-Christian friends and family, or whether that's uh, just via social media or, or some of the, the media trends that we see. Either way, these are questions that we know as Christians we are going to have to address at some point or another. So uh, the first week, um, we looked at... Uh, I'm trying to think what we looked at the first week. Second week, we looked at religious pluralism, right? We looked at this idea that uh, uh, how can you tell that there is only one way? Uh, and the first week, I remember now, uh, we asked the question, if, if there's a good God, how could, how could a good God allow suffering? And how could he allow for evil in the world? Doesn't the presence of evil disprove the fact that we could have an all-powerful, all-good God? And those were great discussions. Now, tonight, though, we're going to be looking at a new question, and that's the question, hasn't science disproved Christianity? Or doesn't science explain everything that religion is supposed to explain? And this is a pressing question in our modern age. Um, if you, you hear any of the, the popular new atheists uh, in our time today, people like Richard Dawkins, they will make this very specific claim. Um, in his book, the, the God Delusion, for example, Richard Dawkins makes this claim that you cannot be a serious scientist, you cannot think seriously about, about science in this world and also be religious. The two are just incompatible. And so we're going to address this question this, this evening, and, and we're not going to um, be systematically looking at specific science to say whether or not uh, there are scientific evidences for the Bible or whether or not there are scientists, scientific proofs uh, against the Bible. What we're going to be doing tonight is looking more conceptually at this question of whether or not science, this, this view of, of knowledge in the world, and religion and Christianity, a, a very different view of knowledge in the world, whether those things, two things are incompatible. So this is how the, the argument might normally uh, be formulated. Uh, religion discovers truth in the world by faith. Science, on the other hand, discovers truth in the world by empirical observation and facts. These two ways of discovering truth are simply incompatible. You can't, on one hand, spend your life uh, making decisions based on the facts and the things you observe, and then in other parts of your life, just base it on blind faith. That would be one way to formulate the problem. But there's another logical way that this gets formulated sometimes too, and that is that religion primarily is an explanation of the world. That's what religion does for us. And yet, increasingly, science is, is proving different explanations, and it's using, doing that via observable facts. Therefore, religion is now unnecessary for us. So you might hear this in a more personal way if you were talking to somebody with, with something like this. In the, in the 21st century, religion is just outdated, Nobody could honestly take all of our scientific achievements seriously and still believe in that mumbo-jumbo. Now, maybe you have heard these specific arguments before. Maybe you haven't. But these things are definitely being said, whether they've been said to you or not. And so there are several ways that we're going to combat this problem, these questions. But before we do that, I want to have a little science quiz it only has one question, and there's a prize. Uh, this book is called Confronting Christianity by Re Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, she's a, uh, um, uh, 
scientist from Oxford. She just recently came out with this book uh, the, over the last year, and it, it looks at 12 difficult questions for the world's hardest religion. It's been a, a really great resource for John and myself as we've gone through some of these questions, questions like, aren't we better off without religion? Doesn't religion cause violence? Isn't Christianity homophobic? And she approaches these questions from a very uh, intellectual and yet uh, easy-to-approachable point of view. So it's been a really helpful resource for us, and I think it would be a helpful resource for yourselves as well. So I have a a science quiz question, and I'll accept two different answers for this question. So first hand up. Who was the scientist that popularized the idea that the earth revolves around the sun instead of the sun revolving around the earth? Anybody? Galileo! Aaron, good work. There's another acceptable answer. Anybody? Copernic. Oh, man. You guys are good. I, would, I had no idea what the answers to those questions were. Aaron, you've got a book up here. But Aaron, you've you got too many books anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> so your book is up here uh, when you have a chance to come grab it. Now, we're going to combat this, this, this question, this, this conflict through a few different ways. But our first response tonight is going to be that as Christians, we need to start by reclaiming science. Now, the, the reclamation of science from a, a Christian perspective uh, is one of our solutions. It's, and it's primarily the solution to that first logical problem, that, that, that science and, and faith are just simply incompatible ways of viewing the world. And we need to, to, to combat this by first reclaiming science. And, and the first way we do this is by reclaiming reason. See, this, this logical problem is an assumption of what faith is, right? And it's an assumption that faith is blind, that faith is a belief in something without any evidence for it, as contrasted with a scientific way of viewing the world, that you believe something because you see it, you observe it, and you can see it repeated. And yet the Bible and Christianity have always assumed that human reason is possible and it's important that people have reasons for believing certain things and that truth has some form of evidence for it, even if it's not always the same kinds of evidence as something like science. The Bible is not antithetical to reason, to to thinking. So let's look at some some biblical evidence for this, right? 1 Corinthians 14.20, Paul says, Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Again, Paul, Paul is assuming that Christian is going to be thinking about the things they believe, that they're going to be wrestling through them, that they're going to be looking for reasons to believe. It's not just a faith that is accepted robotically, but it's something that's worked out by thinking. 2 Timothy 2.7, says to Timothy, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Again, reason is a key part of this idea of Christian faith growing and growing in understanding. And Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, this idea that your mind will be renewed and that you can, you can test things according to, to the way you're reasoning through things, that sounds very similar to the scientific method in some ways, doesn't it? And then finally, 1 Peter 3, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Reason and faith are not antithetical. Each of these verses assumes that human beings are thinking, rational beings, and that by using our minds to examine teaching, truth, to evaluate and assess that truth, 
we can come to fuller, more accurate understanding. Christianity does not say just, just memorize certain claims and then repeat them back as robots. Christianity says, hear these things, think about them, evaluate them, assess them, and then believe them. Now, certainly, at some level, faith involves putting trust in something that we cannot control and, and being humble enough to say we cannot come to complete certainty about things. But, but this is not at odds with reason. So think about the way that we interact with people on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I have good reason to believe that my wife loves me, right? She gives me evidence of this every single day, that she does not strangle me in my sleep. And yet, at the same time, I can't be completely sure that she's not just faking it this whole time, that it's not just a plot to to woo me and someday steal my fortune. Now, it sounds like you have accurately assessed. Kyle, you're a pastoral intern. That sounds pretty illogical. You're right. She's probably not after my money. And that's another piece of evidence, the fact that I have none, that she probably is not just faking it. And yet, again, there's no way for me to know that with certainty, with absolute certainty that she's not faking it. At some base level, at the end of the day, I have to have faith in her, faith in the statements of her love for me, faith in the covenant of marriage that we entered in together. And every day as our marriage grows, the evidence that I see of her love for me also grows, and it strengthens my faith in our marital covenant. So on those days, then when the, when the evidence maybe isn't quite there so much, maybe we've had a difficult few days, maybe there's been some fighting, and yet even in the midst of that, when, when the evidence starts to look the other direction, my faith endures because it has been strengthened by years and years of evidence to the affirmative, that she does in fact love me, that our marital bond is secure Reason and evidence aren't contrary to faith, but they're complementary to faith. I recently read an article by uh, an atheist professor at the University of Chicago, and and he was making this this point, that that faith and reason, reasonable people and faith, they just can't can't coexist. And and he pointed to the story of Doubting Thomas. He said, see, see, Doubting Thomas, Thomas just, he just wanted some evidence for this, this great claim of the resurrection. But Christianity denigrates Thomas. Christianity just wants blind faith. But friends, Thomas was not being asked to have blind faith. Thomas had seen countless pieces of evidence. Thomas had walked with Jesus for three years. He'd seen his miracles. He had heard his claims to be the Son of God, the Messiah. He'd heard Jesus predict that he would die and then after three days be raised again. Thomas wasn't being asked to have blind faith. He was being asked to believe the promises of Jesus because of the evidence of the character and the power of Jesus that he had seen for years leading up until that moment. The question of Thomas's faith wasn't, is it blind or does it have evidence? The question is, how much evidence do you need, Thomas? Christianity does not ask us to throw reason out the door. If that was the case, we wouldn't be having these classes, 
right? We believe that classes like these are important, that they're valuable, that we can reason through the Christian faith. And if that was the case, then the preaching of the word would not have been a central core of Christianity going all the way back to Paul and the apostles. Christianity assumes that thinking through things is how we make decisions, how we process information, that it's a core way we formulate our values and our beliefs. You can't have faith without reason. Faith without reason is just robotic. If it's just an acceptance of a statement without thinking what the statement means, then we just become a computer spitting back the the outcomes that we've been asked. Faith is not removing all reason because at the end of the day, it's not faith in a statement that we have. It's faith in a person. And that faith is backed by the evidence of who that person is. We have faith in the promises of God because of the past actions of God. That is a piece of evidence. So we can do this, though. We can, we can reclaim reason. But obviously that doesn't go all the way to this idea that Christianity and, and science are compatible. So the second part is that we need to reclaim science. and In particular, we need to reclaim scientific history. Much of this can be attributed to uh, this book by Rebecca McLaughlin, who, who does some fantastic work of uncovering the history of Christians being at the forefront of some scientific breakthroughs. So to begin with, it's important for us to note that Christianity has played a key part in the historical development of science. So, for example, the, the scientific method. Right? This is the method that is still taught in our schools today. Uh, the idea that, that we can... Uh, acquire some knowledge about the world around us by observing the world around us, by coming up with the hypothesis, by testing that hypothesis, and, and refining it until we come to, to some kind of conclusion. And this seems very natural to us because we've been raised in this, right? But they, it, this was not always uh, apparent to humans throughout history. So, for example, uh, in, the, in the ancient days, uh, humanity did not assume that the world was stable, that it was consistent, right? You, you imagine yourself as a, a person living in a village 3,000 years ago, right? And the only thing you know is the physical world around you, the, the limited, uh, immediate world around you. And the only thing that you know about the world is that uh, things like weather patterns and things like that, they could be very different from day to day. And If you're here today and you live in Michigan, you know that that is still the case. (laughs) But in the ancient world, what the the humans usually assumed of this, what you will see as you start looking into these ancient civilizations, is that they assumed that because the world would be different from day to day, that that indicated the mood of the world or the mood of, of gods. Right? So you would have a sun god, and you would have a god of the sea, and you would have a, a, a god of, of the earth. And uh, let's say you had a, a, a tsunami happen. What that indicated is that the god of the sea was upset that day, right? that the mood was changing. And so the, the, the view of these ancient civilizations was not that the world was stable and consistent, but that it was chaotic, that it was constantly changing. And what you have in, in, in the Christian Europe in the Middle Ages and beyond is that Christians began to say, okay, well, if we have a rational God who is a consistent God, who is a sovereign over all of creation, then he probably created this world with stability to it, with laws to it. And, and since we're made in his image, we can probably 
find out what those laws are, what these laws of nature are, how the world is, is governed by these laws of nature. And so particularly with Christians in Europe under the Catholic Church, uh, this, this kind of thought begins to happen. And so you have men like Robert Grossetesti and Roger Bacon and William Ockham. These are the men who laid the foundation for the scientific method that we use today. So these men, uh, Roger Bacon uh, is one of the men who, who specifically laid this foundation. He was uh, a disciple of, of Robert Grossetesti. And, and, and Robert Grossetesti was a deacon. He was a bishop in the Catholic Church. Uh, Bacon was a Franciscan friar. Occam, who the, 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 uh, the theory of Occam's razor is named after, he was also a Franciscan friar. And he was extremely interested in this intersection of theology and philosophy and science. Now, this is, this is in the, the, the 12th and 13th century. So this is hundreds of years ago, the very foundations of the scientific method. And then we get into the 17th century, where we have the scientific method for the first time really formulized and, and, and popularized. And this is done by men like Francis Bacon and Rene Descartes. And they took the building blocks laid by these men and they formalized it into the scientific method. And again, these men were devout believers. Bacon was a, a devout Protestant. He was an Anglican and, and he called knowledge the uh, uh, rich storehouse for the glory of the creator. And Descartes was a, a devout Catholic, and he used his philosophy to defend to the faith, to offer up proofs for God. Again, these are the, the fathers of the modern scientific method. But we could continue. Uh, other, other men famous in the, in the 17th century, Robert Boyle and, and Blaise Pascal. Again, these are men who have very significant scientific laws named after them. But they were devout Christian believers that dabbled in both theology and in their science. In fact, they actually, uh, Boyle especially, was considered being a minister, but instead decided to go into science. He was, he was constantly evangelizing throughout his life. And even Galileo, we mentioned earlier, Galileo uh, is particularly famous because he had conflict with the church. Galileo, uh, after Copernicus's theory of, of the, the sun revolving around the earth instead of the earth revolving around the sun, Galileo really started to push this uh, in, against the church. And the church uh, fought back, ended up decrying Galileo as a heretic. And this is usually one of the, the instances that people will point to to say, see, science and the church, they're in conflict. They're constantly in conflict. But Galileo was a Christian, he wasn't coming up with a new theory to, to debunk Christianity. In fact, he said that God is known by his nature in his works and by doctrine in his revealed word. And he was constantly trying to defend his theory, not because he felt his theory went against doctrine, but he felt that his theory was compatible with doctrine, that Christian doctrine would not be changed by changing their view of the universe so that the sun was in the middle instead of the earth. Now, these, these are just a few men throughout history. And this isn't a proof that Christianity is true and, and uh, atheistic perspectives on the universe are false. But all this is saying is that there are very significant figures throughout the history of science intertwined with Christianity that would never it would never have even occurred to them that, their view, that they could be scientists and, and that was incompatible with their faith. Even, even 
theories today that are cited as evidence against Christianity or evidence against religion were often founded by Christians who maintained their belief even in the midst of their discoveries. So uh, a Roman Catholic priest was actually the first person to posit the Big Bang. And, and the idea that the universe had a beginning was actually, uh, it, it was actually denied by atheists at the time because their assumption was that the world had just always existed, that the universe had always existed. And the idea that the universe had a beginning seemed a bit too much like Christianity to them. Even natural selection and Darwinism has this link. One of Darwin's most important partners was a man named Asa Gray. He was a botanist. And he supported Darwin. He, he, he lifted up Darwin's works. But he was constantly evangelizing to Darwin and trying to convince him that his theories were only possible if God was the ultimate source of that evolutionary change. Now again, this does not prove that Christianity is true. But what it does do is indicate to us that Christianity and science do not have to be at odds. In fact, for much of the history of science, they have been partners. Now, these men were not just, it's also important to note, these men were not just cultural Christians, right? They weren't just Christians because the people around them were Christians or because they had to be, but they were devout and they understood their scientific work as being grounded in their belief in a divine creator. So to say that Christianity and science are incompatible would be to spit in the face of hundreds of fathers of modern science, as well as countless high-profile Christian scientists today. Uh, in, in her book, McLaughlin lists uh, dozens of current high-profile professors at universities like Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Yale, uh, MIT, that are believers and take their faith seriously, and yet at the same time are seriously devoted to science. These two things are not necessarily incompatible. Now, we're going to take a look at a few of those people in a few minutes. But before we do that, I want to invite you to, to turn back to your tables. And we're going to have a few moments of discussion for uh, just a few minutes. We are here to talk about big questions. Maybe the biggest question of all. Does God exist? I won't give you a proof tonight, but I hope I will give you some things to think about. Things that have led me from being an atheist to becoming a believer and a follower of Jesus. Perhaps the most widespread fundamental assumption in the intellectual West today is that there is no reality beyond what natural science discovers and that there is no authority or good higher than the freedom of the individual. Now both science and individual freedom are good, but followers of Jesus, like me, have a different view. We believe that both the deepest reality and the highest moral meaning or good or authority are to be found in loving relationship. Why is nature regular? Why does it follow regular laws that even? Why can we understand them? And we're so used to these ideas today that we don't realize that they weren't actually that obvious to most people through most time. And the reason for that is that if you just live in the natural world, it doesn't seem to be always that regular. It seems to be capricious. It changes itself all the time. And so what you can show, I think quite, quite um, decisively historically, is that these ideas, these metaphysical underpinnings of science, uniformity, regularity, intelligibility, have deep theological roots. Their roots go back to a, a long history of theological reflection on a God who is faithful and sustains the world, therefore, in a regular way. 
but uh, just simply the idea that the universe could be expanding, not, not sort of expanding into something, but just that the, the space-time metric changes and that there could be a beginning of time is just incredible. I mean, if you go back to before uh, Einstein's work and you go to Newtonian world, you know, there's basically a coordinate system. There's X, Y, and Z, and T, right? And these are just fixed, and things happen in this grid, and you describe physical processes and events by putting them in this grid. And the idea that the universe was uh, changing is just completely ludicrous to many people. And then along comes Einstein, and now we realize that space-time not only can expand and contract, but through the work of Hubble, it actually is. The universe is expanding, and so if you play it back, there was a time when the universe was incredibly small and tiny. Um, that to me is just mind-boggling, and it actually adds to, yet again, adds to my sort of confidence that, uh, that the creation story has some merit. I, I certainly have colleagues who speak very much the way I used to speak, you know, like how can you believe in something that you can't, uh, you know, prove mathematically or show in this way? And in fact, a friend of mine who's a mathematician used to say that to me. How can you believe in something that, you, you know, you can't prove? I only believe in things I can prove. And then one day he was reading a history book. And his, his friend, who happened to be a Christian, said, you know, why are you reading that history book? <laughs> you can't prove any of that. <laughs> and he realized there, there's a lot of truth that has happened in the past that we can't prove today like you can a mathematical. And furthermore, of course, all of our science and our math rest upon axioms and things that we take at faith. So people who think that they can't deal with faith are really just deceiving themselves. So what I'm fond of saying, and I'll say it again tonight, is I don't have the faith to be an atheist. To me, the universe does require an explanation. The philosopher's very ancient question, of why is there something rather than nothing is still a valid question. And as many people, including physicist Paul Davies, have pointed out, um, the laws of physics themselves demand an explanation that stands somehow out of science. Whether that is a physical explanation or a spiritual explanation, nature is not self-explanatory. And ultimately, if I had to tell someone why I am a theist, it is because precisely I think that nature as we see it, it requires an explanation. And the more we know of the world from science, the more it begs that explanation. I start by saying there is a God who created the universe, uh, and he's not an impersonal God. He has declared himself as a loving God who seeks a relationship with us and also gives us free will to choose him or not. And our purpose then is found in being in relationship with him. The order and structure of the natural laws to me suggests a God who ordained and conceived those laws. The astonishing complexity of living things to me suggests an architect who cares about those things. The fact that there is something rather than nothing suggests the existence of a creator of that something. And, the and indeed, one of the joys I have in studying the natural sciences is that I learn a little bit about what God has done. And in the process, I think I come to understand a little bit of what he is like. He is much bigger, much grander, much more awesome, much more majestic than I would have previously imagined. See, science, it provides a set of tools that are useful for investigating phenomena in the natural world. But as powerful as it may be for dissecting planetary motion and battling cancer, it's not really intended for questions like why did life forms originate in the first place? And we're free to speculate, opine, and have our beliefs, but science is not equipped to answer questions like this. This doesn't itself mean, let me be clear here, that there is an answer somewhere else. It just means that we have to be faithful to what science is and that we can't 
extend the purview of science beyond what it is capable of addressing. The Lord led me to genetics, and I don't have time to get into that story, but it's a fascinating story. Uh, how he led me to genetics, it was not what I had planned to do, um, but my goodness, I'm so happy I did. I can't imagine myself doing anything else, but I see it all as part of his plan. To lead me to that, and to help me to see um, identity in a whole different way. And when I think about my own identity, I think of Christ and um, how he created us. He created us in his image, so we had identity with him. And then we sinned, and his grace, we talk about grace, his grace, through his grace, he wanted to bring us back in relationship with him and to bring us back in identity with him. I appreciate the witness of some of our leading modern scientific minds today because, quite frankly, I don't get science very well. Uh, and so to have these people who have made it their life's work to, to look at the natural world and examine the natural world and, and, and dig in deeper to things about the natural world that can't be seen with just the, the naked eye, to have those people still be steadfastly committed to the historic faith of Christianity is a great encouragement to me, especially when I do have friends and family who are uh, partially explain their unbelief through this idea that science and religion are incompatible. Now, our second response to this question is going to be building on some of the things that you heard in that video, and it's, it's primarily going to be through retaining distinction, retaining distinction between what science and what religion do for us. See, science and religion, they, they can be complementary and even overlapping at times, but we also have to remember that these are primarily two very different ways to get two very different answers to two very different questions. So this is our, our, our primary method to combat that, that second logical problem that was formulated in that, that first section, the problem that is, is usually said that religion functions to explain the world, and yet science explains the world, so religion's unnecessary. So this is how we would address that problem. Because the problem with that statement is that it fundamentally misunderstands the questions that science and religion both function to answer. So one way to think about this is that science usually answers the how, whereas religion usually answers the why. Now, that's not to say that religion doesn't tell us how. We have some fantastic uh, histories in the Bible that explain to us uh, the, the history of the nation of Israel, for example, and the history of the early church. So sometimes the what is a question that religion answers. But primarily what religion does for us and what Christianity does for us is it gives us the why. And we need both of those two things. We need both the how does the world work, and we also need the why does the world work the way it does. Figuring out how the physical world works is critical for us to be able to make changes in that physical world, to use the creative functions that God has designed us with in order to bring invention, to bring healing, to bring redemption to this physical world. I know many of, of the people here in this room are, are work in the medical fields, bringing healing and redemption to our physical world. And, and so we need people who are helping us figure out how this physical world works in order to be able to do that. And that's one of the beautiful things about the, the scientific explosion over the last 300 years is it has given us an immense uh, advancements in the, in the area of medical uh, healing. 
But unfortunately, science cannot answer all of our questions. And this is where it's important for us as Christians to say that we are not opposed to science, but we are opposed to scientism or naturalism, which would say that that, that there's an assumption that this material world is the only thing that could truly exist, or at least that it's the only thing that really matters, that this physical matter and this physical laws around us, the atoms, the neurons, the electrons... But because science simply can't answer all of our questions, we must turn to, to other areas. So Praveen Sethupathy, who was, who was in that video a few moments ago, is now a uh, biomedical professor at Cornell. Uh, he put it this way. He said, science is necessarily agnostic with respect to anything outside of the natural realm. It neither accepts it nor can it refute it. Science is intended to be used to observe the natural realm. And so any questions about what is outside of this natural realm have to be answered elsewhere. So tonight we're going to just look at three questions that science cannot help us answer. Those are the questions of origins, of morality, and of purpose. So we'll start with this question of origins. Where did we come from? Now, this is probably the most hotly contested question, right? Uh, I imagine most of you in your discussions about the conflict between faith and science, this was a a point of conversation. And if there's one topic to which the, the world of naturalism and science, people like Richard Dawkins would point to to say that religion has been disproven, this would be the question, the question of how did we get here? Now, we're not going to this evening do the job of discerning the viability of whether evolution is a plausible explanation for how we got here, uh, that, that whether there are holes or not in that theory. That's, that's just not the function of this class tonight. But what we, we're, we're not going to debate the, the age of the earth, whether it was created in six literal days, whether those days were stretched out. That's not because those aren't worthwhile things to think about and to work through, but because but for our purposes tonight, it's just not necessary. Because even if we uh, concede the theory of evolution to scientists, even if we concede to scientists the age of the earth, even then, science has not answered the question of origins. Because the question of origins is not simply, how did we get to this moment in time on this planet, but why does this planet exist at all? Why does this universe exist at all? And you heard a few of the professors in that video discussing that. This is a philosophical question. It's a religious question. Because while science can tell us all kinds of things about the natural realm, about the natural world, it cannot provide any answers as to why there is a natural world. In other words, as you heard, why is there something rather than nothing? So you see, for years, uh, uh, scientists and and just the the, uh, culture at large agreed that something needed to exist for all eternity. There had to be something that existed for all eternity, but they didn't always agree on what had existed for all eternity. You have different religions who have different gods. The Muslims had their Allah, and the Christians had their Yahweh. And then you had the atheists who, as we mentioned earlier, posited that the universe was the thing that had always existed. It was the, the canvas that had always been there. But then all of a sudden we have some new scientific evidence. 
all of a sudden we begin to see evidence is that the universe is not constant, but that it's changing, particularly that the universe is expanding. And you heard one of the professors in that video talking about this. This is an incredible fact that the universe is changing, that it's growing. And for scientists who once posited that the universe was constant, this is a, a complete reimagination of what the universe is and what the history of that universe looks like. So now we're right back to where we began, that the universe itself, all natural existence as we know it, had to come from somewhere. It had to have a beginning. I appreciate the, word, the, the way that R. Lewis, who is a, a, a professor of theoretical physics at the University of Oxford, he was in that video, and, and, and he posits that there's really only three possible answers to this question. Why is there something? And so these are the three possible answers. One is that the universe, the something, has always existed. There's a problem with that, that theory. That the scientific evidence as we have it right now would say that it hasn't always existed because it's changing, it's, it's growing, which means if we go back in time, it probably at one point had a beginning. So it's not that somebody couldn't believe this, people could believe this, but it flies in the face of what the evidence currently is. So a second possible answer would be that the universe popped out of nothingness, that it just happened, that it was spontaneously generated. But that flies in the face of what we observe about the way that we observe life working. Things don't just pop out of nowhere. They had to come from somewhere, even if it seems like they popped out of nowhere. So again, could you believe this, Lewis says? Sure, but there are problems with it because it doesn't match what we usually observe in the world. And so the third explanation, Lewis says, is that all of space-time, all of the universe, all of, of physical, natural world is dependent on some being that is outside of that natural world. And this is where you would get our notion of theism, that there is a God that is outside of time, outside of space, and that he is sustaining space and time, and that he is the creator of space and time. Now, Lewis is, is a Christian, when he's going through these possible answers, he is speaking to a group of, of scientists that are, some are, are coming from an atheist background, some are coming from a faith background. And, and Lewis, in, in doing this, is not trying to, again, trying to prove that the third answer is the right answer. But what he's saying is that these are all philosophical questions. They're all questions that science just can't answer. And at some level, you have to have an immense amount of faith to believe any of these answers. So science can, can give us theories as to how we got here, but science cannot answer the question of why here even exists. And of course, if we're talking about the question of miracles, if we concede that that third answer is possible, that there is a divine being outside of the natural realm, then we also have to concede that that divine being could intervene in the natural realm if each so chose. But the second question that science just can't answer for us is the question of whether or not an action is immoral or whether it is moral, whether it is right or wrong, if there are inherently good or evil actions in the world. Now, there are several, several reasons why science can't answer this question. Now, the first is that 
We can't even talk about good and evil without acknowledging that there is a universal standard of what good and evil is, a a universal law of morality. Uh, Pastor John talked about this in the first week of these classes. We cannot talk about a universal law, a universal moral law, without acknowledging that only someone with universal authority could create that law. So we're not going to go further into that part of this moral quandrum. Uh, If you want to hear more about that, if you weren't with us for the first week, you can find that on our our Peace Church Vimeo page. But there's another reason why science can't answer the idea of morality in a pure scientific naturalist way. And that's because pure scientific naturalism that just says all we have is this world, the physical elements of this world, that removes any distinction among humans as special and unique. That removes any distinctions of humans as being made in the image of God. And so any basis for human morality, especially that of inherent human rights, goes out the window. And in fact, there are some atheists who have followed this kind of naturalism to its very conclusion. And McLaughlin mentions these in her book. Christopher Hinchins, the uh, famed, uh, now late atheist, said, How do I know there are such things as human rights? I don't. I don't know there are such things. Our grounding for human rights is about as tenuous as our position as a primate species on a rather dodgy planet. If this is all we have, if all we are are atoms, this podium is also just atoms. Peter Singer uh, said a weak old baby is not a, he, he was pot in, the, in this quote, he's, uh, he was arguing for the fact that, that humans, and not just humans, but all beings should be valued based on, on the value that they give to the world, right? And so based on that, he says, a weak old baby is not a rational and self-conscious being. And there are many non-human animals whose rationality, self-consciousness, awareness, capacity, and so on exceed that of a human baby, a week or a month old. Therefore, the life of a newborn baby is of less value than the life of a pig, dog, or chimpanzee. Now, again, this is not to say that all atheists believe this, right? Or that all naturalists believe this. But this is the logical outworkings of believing that all we have is the physical. In his book, uh, The Atheist's Guide to Reality, Alex Rosenberg answered these questions from an atheist perspective. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Why should I be moral? Because it makes you feel better than being immoral. Is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything else you don't like forbidden, permissible, or sometimes obligatory? Anything goes. How fatalistic. Now, again, there are many atheists who believe very strongly in morality and in doing good and would not adhere to this anything-goes perspective. But that morality is not the logical outworking of naturalism. If science is the only kind of truth that we can accept, then our grounds for morality fall out from beneath our feet. We need something outside of science in order to answer the questions of whether something is good or whether it's evil. And this is related to the final question that's unanswered by natural science, and that's the question of purpose. The question of why are we here? What is our purpose? And we're not going to spend a lot of time thinking about this one because it it has a lot to do with that question of of morality and of origins. 
Because if science is all we have, then as an agnostic scientist Alan Lightman says, we are just a bunch of atoms like trees and like donuts. But if nothing separates us from a tree or a donut, then it doesn't much matter whether we live like a tree or we live like a donut. Now, some naturalists would posit that our purpose as human beings is to make the world a better place for our children or for the human race's next generation. Some would say that our purpose is to ensure the survival of our species. But that's a moral judgment, not a scientific one. As we've just said, morality is not the the natural outworking of, of science. So if we're just atoms and nothing else matters, then why should we care whether our species survives or not? Why should we care if our children even exist? Why should we assume that existence is a good thing? We don't have a framework for what good things are if all we have is this. So to conclude this point, science simply can't answer all of our questions, and that's okay. We need science, but we also need religion. We also need philosophy, because they give us different kinds of answers to different kinds of questions. So to say that advances in science has removed our need for religion is like saying that because we have advanced in hearing aids, we no longer need eyeglasses. No matter how advanced hearing aids become, they're never going to replace our sense of sight. Can someone navigate this world without being able to see? Of course. Do those people who cannot see, do they have a different kind of appreciation for hearing than than somebody who has sight does? They, They probably do. But it wasn't supposed to be that way. It wasn't supposed to be just one or the other. So Christian, those are our responses to this logical problem of whether or not faith and science are at odds with one another. But that leaves us with the question of, of where do we go from there? As Christians, where do we go? Okay, well, we've, we've said that science and religion can coexist, but what do we do now? And I think primarily, friends, we need to remove our fear of science, but we also need to remove our dependence on science. Christianity and science do not need to be at war. God has blessed us with both general revelation, eyes to see the world around us, and special revelation, knowledge of, of, of the reality of, of the spiritual realm, knowledge of him and the way that he relates to us. And both of those things are revelations of God, revelations of his character, revelations of his creation. And we must value and appreciate both of those things. Just as we can see God's glory in the beauty of a landscape, we can see his glory in the beauty of the human genome. And just as we wonder at his stability of his reign over the universe, we can wonder at the stability of the laws of physics ordained and sustained by his power, just as those 13th century Christian scientists did. And as we use technology and and take advantage of the medical breakthroughs that have happened, We should marvel at the creative power that God has given to humanity, and we should be excited to see where science takes us next. And we should be encouraging our children to enter into scientific fields. Science is increasingly becoming the arena where moral decisions 
are being made for the next generation. Whether that's questions of how we modify genetics, questions of what artificial intelligence will do, questions about, about new uh, health uh, initiatives, questions about things like, like cloning, about environmental sciences. These, these are critical arenas for the world for the next generation. And friends, we need Christians in those fields to help the world navigate those questions. Those are hard questions. And this is especially to, I just want to say, especially true if you live here in the Caledonia Middleville area, we have some fantastic teachers and educators in, in these districts who are as committed as I'll get out to their faith. Uh, we have men and women who, who attend this church who are, who are science teachers in our local districts who are committed to their faith but also committed to, to teaching ch- children well in the areas of science. So I want to encourage you, friends, this doesn't have to be, science does not have to be an area that we, we blind our, our eyes to. But we also need to view science in light of its limitations. And as Christians, we need to be wary of depending so much upon science. The, the, as Pastor Tim Keller says, we must interpret the book of nature through the book of Scripture. Or as John Calvin puts it, Scripture, the Word of God, is a pair of spectacles through which we see the world. It clears up our blurry vision so we can see God and his creation more clearly. Because science alone can't save us. The newest technological breakthroughs and theories can't give us meaning, they can't give us purpose, and they certainly can't equip us for life's most fundamental questions. Science cannot tell us how to grieve when we encounter the brokenness of this world. It cannot give us hope to move forward past that grief. It cannot give us a vision for what is to come beyond this life. And it cannot give us moral direction in this life. God's perfect special revelation in the word is our rock on which our lives are built because it answers the questions of why in a world in which we're only equipped to see the how. And friends, the Bible Sometimes it tells us the how, but it doesn't always. It doesn't tell us exactly how God created. It, doesn't, it just says he spoke. It doesn't tell us the science of how God's words caused matter to exist. And it certainly doesn't tell us whether or not uh, how the, the days worked before he created the sun. It just doesn't tell us how those things happened. We can speculate and we can interpret and we can interpret faithfully and consistently but that's not the point. The Bible does tell us why God created. He created in order to bring about something that is good. And he created in order to create a people in his image. And Isaiah 43, 7 says he created for his glory. And Paul tells us in Ephesians and Romans and 1 Timothy that he created specifically so that those people he made in his image would be drawn to him through the death of Jesus Christ for his glory. But of course, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how 
Jesus died. At least it doesn't tell us the scientific process, whether he died through asphyxiation as his lungs collapsed or, or whether his heart gave out after uh, hours of physical and emotional and mental stress. We can speculate based on how Roman executions usually happened, of, of the how, the scientific how Jesus actually died. But that's not the point. And the Bible certainly doesn't tell us how Jesus was raised from the dead beyond it was by the power of God. It doesn't tell us the process, the scientific process of how his cells regenerated, how his, his brain waves started firing up again. All we know is the tomb was empty. But we do know why he died. And we know why he was raised. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us he was raised in accordance with the scriptures to fulfill God's promises to his people and Paul says in that chapter that, that without Christ being raised, we would still be in our sins. So Christ rose again so that we might have life, so our faith would not be in vain. Like Romans 6 tells us the why. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God and Jesus Christ. Friends, we know the why. We know the answers to the most fundamental questions of this life, which is why we need religion, why we need Christianity, why we need the Bible to answer those questions. Why did Christ die? Why did Christ raise? So that he might defeat death once and for all. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, this evening we wrestle with a difficult question, Lord. And Lord, we know there is more wrestling to this question that must be done for us as Christians. Lord, we know that we must wrestle with now how to interpret the natural world, how to interpret new science with the Bible, how to, to see science through the spectacles of Scripture. Lord, we know that that is difficult and hard and that it is a wrestling but Lord, ultimately, we know that we cannot survive this life with just science alone. And Lord, we are so grateful that you have shown yourself, that you have intervened in this world through the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, our faith is not in what we see. Our faith is in what we have heard and in the ways we have seen your spirit work through this life, through the people around us and ultimately through the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb. Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, Lord, you would fill us with a hope, a hope that would sustain us as we have to wrestle with these difficult questions. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with, a, with an uncertainty about this life, Lord. I pray that you would fill us with a, with a, with a, with a longing for more than what the physical life can offer us. Lord, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So we pray that you might equip us to be able to take the ultimate Sabbath rest 
and the cross of Christ. It's in the power of Jesus we pray these things. All God's people said, amen. Next week, we're going to be looking at the question of why should I be a Christian when Christians are all a bunch of hypocrites? We'll see you then.